Let me, uh, let me pray, and then we will start back in on page 35, where we left off last week. We didn't make it very far, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day you've given us and the time that we have together today. We ask that you would bless those who aren't able to be here today, that they would be safe if they're traveling, and those who are sick, that they would be comforted. God, help us to honor you today by the way that we look into your word and learn and grow. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, let's see. I have these statements up here that uh, are interesting statements. And if you uh, are a Christian, and especially if you've been a Christian in my theology class, these should all be disagreeable to you. All right? Interesting statements. But I want to uh, put up there with those statements... I want to share with you the results from a survey done by Ligonier and Lifeway. They do this like once every two years or three years or something. They're just surveying Christians. So the, I'm about to put percentages up here next to these. And that's the percent of self-proclaimed Christians who agree with the statement. So the statement the Bible is not literally true. What percentage of Christians would agree with that statement, do you think? Self-proclaimed Christians. Oh no, thousands. 77% agree with the statement, the Bible is not literally true. That's a pretty bad start here, isn't it? <clears throat> Jesus was created by God. 82%. 82% of self-proclaimed Christians agree with the statement, Jesus was created by God. Okay, I'll put the other ones up here. We got 72% agree with everyone is born innocent. 68% <clears throat> agree with God accepts all religions. 70% agree with the Holy Spirit is a force. And 61% agree with God learns. You think theology, learning theology is important? And do you think very many Christians out there are learning theology? That's pretty much what that's revealing, isn't it? They're not reading their Bibles. That's obviously the main thing. It's not about learning theology apart from the Bible. It's about reading your Bible. And these are the percentages of self-proclaimed Christians agreeing with those statements. That is um, extremely sad. So um, that's why I'm passionate about teaching theology from Scripture, this is my sixth time going through this series in this church, I think, fifth or sixth. And that's because I know what it's like out there. And I don't want this church to be like that. And I'll do anything I can to keep this church from being like that, okay? That's why it's important that we talk about these things. This, these statements go against everything that the Christian church has believed for the 2,000 years that Jesus has been building his church. Very, very sad. So, as we think about theology today, as we're talking about gospel basics, this is why we're doing it. Because we want to honor God with what His Word says, and we don't want to be Christians who are walking contradictions. We don't want to be Christians who say that our book is literally not true. How awful. Okay, enough of that. Hopefully that's inspired you to be a better theologian today. 
Well, last week we started this lesson on gospel basics, and uh, we started it off with the review that wasn't really a review because we went from the last lesson right into this one, but this week it is more of a review. God's plan of salvation is set up in such a way that bloody sacrifice is a requirement for forgiveness. Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness of sins besides the shedding of blood. Life must be offered for life. So when you think about the Old Testament, or you could call it the first covenant, all of those Old Testament or first covenant sacrifices were leading up to and foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice of Christ once for all people. The blood of goats and bulls could not take away sin. Could you pass that back to her? Thank you. The blood of goats and bulls could not take away sin, but the life given by the Son of God does take away our sin. So those goats and bulls, all those years after years after years of slaughtering animals, it was leading up to, it was foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. So last week we started talking about the gospel at a really basic level, looking at Jesus' words in John 10 and John 14, talking about what he was plainly stating there. He's the door to the sheep. He's the way, the truth, the life. Remember seeing that last week in John 14, 6? Jesus did not present himself as a way. He didn't come to the people and say, look, me, Buddha, Muhammad, Dalai Lama, whatever floats your boat. That's not what Jesus said. He was actually very narrow in his presentation of salvation, saying, I am the way to the Father. The way. No other way. And we mold over this question about why so many people who claim to follow Christ miss this aspect of his teaching. And that refers to this, right? 68% of people who claim to follow Christ believe that God accepts all religions. So why do they miss that very basic point? And we talked about that, how... There's the cultural pressure. There's just the reality they're not reading their Bibles. There's also the major reality that many of them have never been born again. They claim to be Christians, but it's just a label they put on their lives. It's not a true conversion experience. They've never had that. And so, yeah, why would they say that Jesus is the only way? Why would they if those things are the case? All right, so we mulled those things over last week, and we're going to continue mulling that over, but this time from the book of Acts. So let's all go to the book of Acts together. You see on your sheet at the top of 35, we have several passages we're going to look at starting in chapter 3. We'll just look at these together because they're in the same book, easy enough for us to flip around. Acts chapter 3, verse 16. Now you'll notice there on your sheet, I also have this box there with a bunch of references in the book of Acts (laughs) where you can see this same theme show up over and over and over again in Acts. And this theme is that there is one way to heaven. What did the apostles teach? What did the early church leaders teach about how someone can be saved and go to heaven, be forgiven of their sins, be united to God once for all time? What did they believe? It was clearly through Jesus alone. So Acts 3.16, let's look at this verse. It says, On the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So you have Peter here speaking after a healing, and this, the only way that this man was healed was through faith in Jesus' name. When the apostles were given this supernatural ability to heal, it was a miraculous sign to the people. 
a miraculous sign that they had the authority to do this, that God was working through them, that people should listen to them because they were given this special power. And so when they would go around healing, they didn't say, do you believe in God? And the person says, yes, I believe there's a higher power. Ha ha, you're healed. And that was it. That wasn't it, was it? No, it was faith in what or who? Jesus, very specific, faith in Jesus. Look at how he says this in verse 16. On the basis of faith in his name, it's Jesus's name, no one else's name, not our own name, not your parents' name, nobody's, nobody else's name except for Jesus's name. And what you'll see in common with all of these references in Acts, not just the ones we're going to look at, but the ones that are listed in that box too, is it says his name. In the book of Acts, it comes up many times, his name. We're talking about Jesus's name. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 12, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Would someone read that for us? Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Who's got it? Stan, go ahead. Acts, are you in Acts 4? Acts 4, verse 12. Okay, so what percentage of uh, the apostles do you think agreed with this statement that God accepts all religions? Zero percent. What does the first part of verse 12 say? There's salvation in who? No one else. And no one else but Jesus. And here's his name being invoked again. There is... No other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Only the name of Jesus. Okay, drop down to verse 17. Same chapter. Verse 17. When the apostles were being persecuted, the council came together against them and said, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. The council did not want the apostles speaking in Jesus' name. Verse 18, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. So even unbelievers, the authorities, they recognized the name of Jesus is doing something here. The name of Jesus has power in this culture. It's changing people. The name of Jesus is having an effect on our community. And they said, teach, speak, but not in his name, not in Jesus' name. Did the apostles follow that direction? They did not. Okay, let's go to chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 21. After the conversion of Saul, we know him better as Paul, he began to teach and preach. Would someone start there in the middle of verse 19, where it starts a new sentence, and read through 21? All right, so Paul, I'll just call him Paul. At that time, he was Saul. But Paul is converted. He has this born-again experience, and he goes back to the synagogues where he came from, the Jewish houses of worship. And he goes back and says, you guys need to hear about this church I found. No, he does not. He, he goes to them and he says, I found religion. No, that's not what he said. What does he say? Verse, the end of verse 20, what does he say? Yes, he was proclaiming a person, not a church, not a religion, not a fad, not a, 
not some kind of a trend. He was proclaiming a person, the person of Jesus, saying he is the Son of God. And the people are bewildered because Paul used to persecute the church. So in verse 21, it's like, wait, he was the guy who was destroying the people who called on this name, the name of Jesus. So now instead of destroying those people, he's joining them and proclaiming that name. He's proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 27. I'll start in verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, Paul was. But they were all afraid of him because he was killing them before, right? They were not believing he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas was vouching for Paul saying, no, he's preaching this name. He's now holding forth the name of Jesus Christ. The name that you preach and that you believe in is so important. Okay, verse 43 of chapter 10. Let's go to chapter 10, next chapter over. Let's look at uh, verse 43. And you have Peter here preaching to Gentiles, the first mass conversion of Gentiles. Would someone read verse 43 of chapter 10? Go ahead, Brandon. All right. Everyone who believes in him, everyone who finds salvation through his name, receives forgiveness of sins. That's how simple the gospel is, isn't it? Very simple. Believe in his name. Trust in his name. It's the name of Jesus that you find forgiveness of sins. And then finally, chapter 19 Verse 17, I'll read that one for us. Paul is at Ephesus with his missionary companions. Huh. This is a very interesting story. I should back up. I'll start at verse 11 of chapter 19. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, even let's just pause right there and see something that's outside of our study. Who was performing miracles? Well, yeah, it's like a both-and thing, right? Because it's through the hands of Paul, but ultimately, it's God performing the extraordinary miracles. And so, of course, Paul is being used, but this is God at work through Paul. So that, verse 12, handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them. And the evil spirits went out. But, verse 13, also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? Very interesting. Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Verse 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them and all... 
sorry, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Okay, so you have this amazing, miraculous, demon-casting-out moment here. Hi, you guys. We're at the top of that sheet there and looking at references in the book of Acts. And through this, whose name was being magnified? Paul's name? No. The name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. So here's another just kind of a side note thing to our whole study. When people claim to be apostles or people claim to be great teachers or whatever, and they're going around having a lot of influence, whose name is being magnified through that ministry? If the person's name is being magnified, that's not a godly ministry, is it? Here, Jesus' name is being magnified. And I mean, he was doing so, such extraordinary miracles because of the power of God that someone wanted to get a hold of his handkerchief. Give me, give me Paul's hanky so I'll be healed. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And even the result of that was that Jesus was magnified. Not Paul, but Jesus. Amazing stuff. Okay, so looking at all those references, here's the question. Why did the apostles put so much emphasis on the name of Jesus? Don't overthink it. Give me an answer. Yes, the one. Not one of many, the one. Yeah, right. They recognize that. What you do with the name of Jesus is like life or death, isn't it? How do these examples and acts refute the idea of universalism that we're all taking different roads to the same place? This is so, so popular today, this whole we're all taking different roads thing. I mean, you hear it around here all the time where people will say things like, oh, what, you know, we're, we're all just, we're all going to be together in heaven, so we might as well, you know, just hold hands now and gather around the fire and have warm feelings. Really? We're all going to heaven. You know, I, I believe as long as you worship God, you're fine. As long as you go to church, you're fine. That's not what the apostles were preaching. Okay. So, so how, these examples in Acts, how do they refute the idea of universalism? Yeah, how many of those I am statements did Jesus say, I am a blank versus I am the blank? It was always the, wasn't it? I'm, I am a bread of life. There are lots of breads of life that people could go sample from. But I'm just one for those who, you know, I, I match their preferences and so they want to follow me. That is not how Jesus presented this, is it? That's not how his disciples presented this, is it? So, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, people, there are lots of people out there who don't like this idea of exclusivity. That's a good word that Mandy used. They don't like that word. And, but they still want to be Christians. It's like, well, you got to pick one. All right? So you don't like the idea of exclusivity. Well, just go be a Hindu or Buddhist or something. Just go do that. If you are rejecting the exclusivity of Christ, don't claim Christ. Because that is like fundamental to who Jesus Christ is. Someone who claimed to be the only way. And so if you reject this only way stuff, you, you just reject Jesus and move on to your, your next God. And the way that seems right to a man, its end is death, Proverbs says. That's where that ends up. And that's the warning we give people, but... Don't try to blend the two. Don't try to blend universalism with Christianity. Those are two different things. You cannot do it. You cannot read the Bible honestly and say, we're all taking different roads to the same place. You have to reject the Bible if you're going to do that. Okay? Does that make sense? Is that logical? 
<laughs> at least, okay? Because I know it can hurt feelings, but well, I'm sorry. Uh, what, what's, facts uh, don't care about your feelings? That's what people say? Okay, all right. All right, well, let's talk about justification by faith. Very, very important, and you've got some blanks there you can fill in here. Justification by faith is the doctrine that sinners are made right with God and declared innocent by Him through trusting in Jesus alone. So justification by faith is the doctrine that sinners are made right with God and declared innocent by Him through trusting in Jesus alone. Very important doctrine. And a key verse in our understanding here is Romans 5.1. So go ahead and turn to Romans 5.1 when you're done jotting that down. Um, we will be spending probably the rest of our time here talking about justification by faith. But if you want a further study, I've got seven booklets here on justification. You can pick one up afterwards um, and study the topic more if you'd like. But uh, we're going to be talking about this the rest of our time here. Romans 5.1 is where we'll begin talking about justification by faith. This goes hand in hand with the idea that Jesus is the only way. When we talk about justification, it's that first part of the definition. It's being made right with God or being declared innocent. That is a need that we all have, isn't it? We all have a need to be made right with God. Even if we're unable to fully articulate what's wrong, we know something's wrong. We know that there's distance or there's a break between us and God, that we're not uh, made whole, we're not unified in the way that we were designed to be. And the way that we define that, of course, is sin, and we've talked through that in this class and a previous study. But sin has made us to be in such a situation that we need to be made right with God. We need to be declared innocent. We're guilty before Him. So let's look at Romans 5.1 and see what it has to say. And we want to pay attention to the verb tenses. Paul writing to Christians here. What does he say in Romans 5.1? Who can read that for us? Romans 5.1. Go ahead, Shauna. So we have the word have being used twice with two different tenses there. What do we have uh, at the start with the word have? What do we have with have? Is it past, present, or future tense the first time it's used? Past. Therefore, having been justified by faith, something that's happened. So for Christians, this is an event that has already taken place. Having been justified by faith. What about the second use of the word have? Past, present, or future? Present. Because of this event that took place in our past, we currently have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And those are, that's really good to have, isn't it? I mean, before we didn't have peace, now we do have peace as Christians. And it's because of this event that take, has taken place. So think of how different this would read if it was something like, Therefore, since we are continually being justified by faith, we have the opportunity to obtain peace with God. That's suddenly quite different, isn't it? It's very different. But the fact that we can say we have been justified, there was a point on the timeline in the past that we have been justified, we now currently have this perpetual peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, just real basic here, if we think of it as a, a timeline, two 
things on the timeline. You were going along, living your life, and then like lightning bolt right here, we have justification that happens. And faith, of course, is the how of how that happens, and we'll talk about that. But there's justification that happens. And so from that point forth, you have continual peace. And it's not just like peace until you die. It's peace into eternity future. You have peace into heaven. You have peace into the new earth. You have peace with God forever and ever because of this one event of being justified by faith. And that happens when you have authentic faith. The very first time you have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ You are justified once for all. Now, if that's the case, and it is because that's what the Bible presents, if that's the case, it's really important that we define faith now, isn't it? Because if we say, okay, at a moment in time, you are justified by God once for all by faith, and we don't define faith, then how do we know who are believers and who are not believers? Well, how do you know if you're a believer or if you're not a believer? You have to define faith somehow, don't you? And so that's what we want to do. We want to define faith. The faith that saves is a personal trust in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. So again, you have a a fill in the blank there. Saving faith is a personal trust in the person and finished work of Jesus. You come to Jesus recognizing that he is who he claimed to be. Jesus is the man who is God. Jesus is the way. The truth, the life, that's who he presented himself to be. So you come to him with that viewpoint, not as someone who's like created by God, as 82% of self-proclaimed Christians say. Can you believe that Jesus is Savior if he's a creature? Wow, I'd like us to be a lot stronger on that. Uh, Can a fellow creature save you from your sin? No. No. A fellow creature is in the same pickle you're in. He's not God. But if he is God, if he is the creator instead of a creature, all of a sudden he's powerful enough to save, isn't he? And so you come to him in faith that he is able to save you from your sins because he claimed to be God. He is God. And you have a personal trust not only in who he is, but what he has done. His finished work on the cross. Remember when he... Breathed, right before he breathed his last, when he was on the cross, he exclaimed, it is finished. He didn't say, it is finished except for your baptism. He didn't say, it is finished except for your church attendance for the rest of your life. He said, it is finished. His death is a full, satisfactory payment of, this, of the debt that we owed as sinners. And so you come to him in faith of who he is and what he has done, that he died on the cross in your place for your sins, and he rose again on the third day. Knowledge of this is not enough. Knowledge alone is not enough. Because there are a lot of people out there who would recognize that as just like information, just facts of history, yes, there was a Jesus, yes, he was crucified, And in fact, there would be some people who would even say, yeah, I believe he rose from the dead. And it's just like, I believe as far as, I believe George Washington crossed the Potomac. Just facts. Yeah, I believe that. That's not enough. That's just knowledge. Now that's part of it. You got to have that knowledge. But it can't just be knowledge. Knowledge and approval are not enough. 
Because there will be some people that say, yes, Jesus was a good person. There will be some people even say, yeah, I recognize Jesus as God, and he did these things, and it was good. He, he died and rose again, and that's good. Saying that that's good isn't enough. Okay? You have to have personal trust that Jesus did those things for you in your place for your sins. Not just that, yes, Jesus was good and he did those things and God loves the world and, you know, it's good that he did this and I like my church and, you know, I have a nice fellowship of just friendships with people and et cetera, et cetera. That's all fine and dandy. But is Jesus your Savior? Do you recognize your guilt before God without Jesus? And that the only hope that you have to be rescued from the eternally holy judge who judges righteously, the only hope you personally have is that Jesus died in your place for your sins and rose again for your justification, that by faith alone you are made right with God. Some people stop short of that. I had a a grandmother, this is, by the way, explained in... Grudem's systematic theology. But I I had a a grandmother who her whole adult life was a Sunday school teacher in the United Methodist Church. Went to church every Sunday, taught the two and three-year-old Sunday school class. And over time, it became increasingly evident that she did not trust Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. Church was nice. Teaching the little lessons that they get, you know, that's nice. Being with kids, that's nice. Affirming Jesus is good, that's nice. But is he your savior from your sin? Over time, it became apparent because sin, hmm, she started to accept lots of sins. It's not a big deal before God. Changing with the culture. Um... Jesus was just one option of many options. This, she would have agreed to this. She's passed away now. She would have agreed to this that Jesus or that God accepts different religions or even just people who don't even really acknowledge him but try to be good people. That's not faith. So basically, when we think about how whole religions or denominations go wayward um, or just start off on the wrong foot completely, you've got. Uh, two different labels we can attach to religions. One is apostate and one is false. There are certain religions that have become apostate. I just mentioned the United Methodist Church. Methodism, generally speaking, as a whole, has become an apostate religion. They've embraced all sorts of things that go against the Word of God. Well, for instance, this grandmother... And, okay, I, I got to... I will explain it more. I'm going to say the first thing for shock value, and then I'll explain it, okay? The, my grandmother was a big Hillary Clinton supporter, okay? So there's the shock value, okay? Um, so does that mean all Christians vote Republican? No, all right, so I just want to say that. Okay, no, not necessarily. However, she gave the big thumbs up to Hillary Clinton's values. Abortion, homosexuality, you know, you name it, all that stuff. Can a Christian give the thumbs up to abortion? No, absolutely not. So now, but when you, you know, start off by saying, well, abortion's wrong, homosexuality's wrong, you know, these other things are wrong, but over the course of time, you start to embrace it, that's called apostasy. When you start off by saying, Jesus is the only way of salvation, and you feel this urgency to get the gospel message out, but over the course of time, you say, well, well, I don't know. Muslims are fine. Atheists are fine. They try to be good people. They're fine. 
That's apostasy. A falling away is what that's called. So there are many religions or denominations out there who are apostate, meaning they started off well hundreds of years ago, and now they're in a bad place. Then you have false religions, which means just from the beginning they were off. So Mormonism is a good example of that. Okay. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, many others, of course. I mean, we want to go outside of ones who claim Christianity. Um, you could say uh, Sikhism or all the different mystic religions. Um, you could say Islam, too, right? I mean, they just all started off on the wrong foot. They never even proclaimed a Christian message. So those are the two labels that we would attach to certain movements or religions and say they either started off well and now they're apostate or they were false from the get-go. False right here, yeah. L. Ron Hubbard. He was never uh, a Bible-believing Christian, so yeah. That's okay. Yeah, they rejected their own Messiah. Yeah. And they were yeah, technically even apostate before that because what, what kind of Judaism did Jesus walk into in the Gospels? They were making big deals out of little things. They were neglecting the big things they should have been paying attention to. And he called them to reform in him. Come believe in me and, and my kingdom will be established. And they rejected him. And so now they've... I don't, yeah, they're just way, way off. Shauna, do you have a... Uh-huh, yeah. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Yep, now that is, that is one of those issues that is so, so difficult. Like, can a believer, um, can a believer embrace women in leadership in a way that disagrees with what we here teach? Yes, uh, but it's a bad sign, isn't it? I mean, that, that's usually the first step. I mean, if you look at all these uh, denominations and religions that accept homosexuality who are apostate, it, they all started with women in leadership, all of them. And then that was the next step. And uh, the problem is that the Bible teaches explicitly against that. So you have to reject it. You have to start explaining away very clear passages of Scripture that say this isn't to happen. Start explaining that away. What else can you explain away? That's how it goes. It's a slippery slope, and people don't like the slippery slope argument sometimes, but slippery slopes are real. Just ask anybody who's gone skiing, right? Yes, little girl. That's her nickname, not my pejorative for her. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's so, so sad. I mean, um, so many churches and denominations, but individual churches you can look at have just become silly. They've left what matters most. And there are so many people who attend churches today who do not know what they confess to believe. They confess to be Christians, and they don't even know. So um, a lot of bigger churches are guilty of this. Bigger churches don't have to be guilty of this, and there are some good bigger churches. And when I say bigger, I'm talking a thousand plus. There are, there are some, though, or many, it's, sadly, it's the rule of thumb that the bigger they are, the more watered down they get. And, um, for instance, we have a family member who attends a, one of these bigger churches that um, during Christmas time, they have six services on a weekend, three on Saturday, three on Sunday. And they make a big production. They, get, they bring Santa Claus in. 
get your picture with Santa. They'll do a Christmas tree walk through Enchanted Forest. They'll bring fr- the characters from Frozen will be there. You know, it's all about getting families in with all that stuff. One year, I watched a promo for their Christmas thing. They didn't mention Jesus. Like, what is Christmas again? Like, what, what is this all about? You would think it was the birth of Santa. And, and it's so sad. And they've got, you know, they call themselves a church. They claim Christianity. But sadly, churches like that produce people who affirm things like this. It doesn't have to be that way, but it often is. Let's keep going. Otherwise, this lesson, this PowerPoint will drag on for 10 months. Uh, Justification by faith, continuing to focus on that. This one doctrine is what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. This one doctrine sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. Any other religion will say, do this, and then you will get that. Do this, get that. Do this, get that. It's something that you have to work at in some way, shape, or form. Some sort of deed you have to do, some sort of performance on your end to earn something. Christianity is the only religion in the world that says, Jesus paid it all. It's paid, it's done, it's finished. You are made right with God once for all simply by believing. No other religion out there is offering grace. I I hope you guys recognize that. And it's very telling, isn't it? Because that's like one one of the number one things that people level against us when someone is in a works-based religion and we're having a religious conversation. They want to attack grace. Well, you believe you can just be saved and go, you know, kill people. What? Like, I mean, it's just so stupid. Yeah, I believe in grace, but that's not what grace is. We believe grace does change a person, but salvation is by grace. And every other religion rejects that. Instead of funneling sinners through a church or a religious system, Christianity points sinners to a personal interaction with the divine person of Jesus. We don't go out and say, join this church and they'll give you a list of all the steps. Like We we never evangelize by telling people to join our church. That's not what Christians do. We don't go out evangelizing, calling people to leave their system and join this other system. We call people to meet Jesus. What were the apostles doing over and over and over again? Proclaiming his name, suffering for his name. It's all about his name. It's not our church's name. It's not our name. Not our family's name. It's the name of Jesus. And that's very exciting for us. It should be because we don't have to maintain an appearance before people. We don't have to maintain a system to keep it from crumbling, to have a good PR staff. Does Jesus need a PR staff? <laughs> okay. If, if he got one, they would mess things up. Jesus is his own public relations specialist, isn't he? You just point people to him. Uh, I used to have a shirt, a popular Christian saying, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all we're doing here. Go to the bread of life. Go to Jesus. We have nothing in and of ourselves to offer, but we have Jesus to offer. That's exciting. John Frame, a theologian, illustrates saving faith this way. It's knowledge. You've got to have the information, right? But it can't just stay there. It can't just be information and that's it. It's belief, okay? So believing that those things actually happened. So it's hearing the information. It's believing that those things happened as facts of history, 
But then there's also trust. A personal trust in that those things happened for me. Those things happened on my behalf. A, verse, a great verse that illustrates this that we'll actually look at in the sermon today too is Galatians 2.20. Now turn there with me and make this a memory verse for yourself this week. If you have not memorized Galatians 2.20, you should memorize it this week. Don't put it off another day. Galatians 2.20. Look at how the Apostle Paul describes his salvation experience. It doesn't start off the way that you might think it would start off, Galatians 2.20, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. His, his testimony of his personal faith in Jesus starts off with, I was crucified with him. But then he goes on to say, now it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's personal trust in Jesus, isn't it? He loved me. He died for me. It's no longer me living. It's Christ living in me. That's, that's a very deep expression of faith. It's not an allegiance that you're swearing. Uh, like we would pledge allegiance to the flag, and we so often don't even know what that means. And when it comes down to it, would we actually die for our country? Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. This is something much deeper than that, isn't it? That Jesus Christ lives in us. He is our life. He died for us. He rose again for us. He loves us. It's personal trust. It's not just an acknowledgement of fact. It's a personal trust. That's what saving faith is. Okay. Heath Lambert says, faith is the instrument of justification because it is the attitude of the heart that does not rely on any work that we can perform. Faith must necessarily rely on the merits of another. And so God exalts the righteousness of his son when he justifies sinners who look exclusively to that righteous son, trusting in his merits as the only ground for our salvation. It's an amazing statement that you could dwell on for a while. And we'll talk more about this next week. At the top of the next page, we get into this righteousness of the Son that is given to us. Okay, we'll talk about that next week. But at the start here where he talks about faith, he says, faith must necessarily rely on the merits of another. When we say we believe in Jesus, we're not just saying, yeah, Jesus existed, good guy. Yeah, pat him on the back. Jesus was great. We are saying, Jesus is my only hope. That's saving faith. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology says, we should not lose sight of the fact that its meaning is not limited to the intellectual, theoretical consciousness, but also includes the moral consciousness, the conscience. So again, we're not just saying, yeah, in theory, Jesus did this and it was good. He died and yeah, that's good. But when we say we believe in Jesus as our personal savior, we're saying he did something for us in a moral sense, in a very personal sense, deep down to the root of who we are in our hearts. He cleanses us individually from all sin. Jesus is our Savior from sin. He cleanses our conscience. Now, the faith that saves 
is necessarily coupled with repentance. That's there on the bottom of your sheet. The faith that saves is necessarily coupled with repentance. And so we'll start on this this week. We'll finish by looking at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. That's where we'll finish. But we'll pick this up next week. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 8, we will see this idea of repentance coming alongside faith. And I want to say from the outset here that we are not to be scared of this word. Um, We shouldn't be scared of speaking of it right alongside the word faith. They are two sides of the same coin. Sometimes people will get freaked out and say, we shouldn't talk about this repentance stuff. But I think that happens for a couple of reasons. One, because uh, probably the biggest reason, the person doesn't have a good definition of what repentance is. Because if you think that repentance is living a perfect life, then, yeah, that's, that, that should not be talked about when it comes to salvation. Um, if you think that repentance is a means of maintaining your salvation, that when you fall back into sin, you must automatically repent to be saved again, that's also a bad definition. And I would say with you, yeah, we shouldn't talk of it that way. But if we rightly define repentance based on the Scriptures, and we bring it alongside faith, we can see that they are two sides of the same coin. So let's look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and consider what that has to say. Would someone read those three verses for us? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Who's got it? All right. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, those first two verses of what we just looked at there, is very clear that salvation is a gift of God's grace that we do not work for. Okay, well, let me go back to that one. There is grace on display through faith in our salvation. Salvation is a gift of God. You see that in the end of verse 8? A gift is something that's given to you. Do you have to work to earn a gift? No, because then it's not a gift. Then it's a wage. It says very explicitly that salvation is not of works. How much clearer could we get? And there's no boasting, verse 9. So it's not as a result of works with the intended purpose here that no one can boast. No, You can't pat yourself on the back and say, I did it. I saved myself. God set up the system and I did it perfectly. Saved me. No. So, very clear that salvation is by grace through faith. It's a gift, not of works. You cannot boast about it. But then what do we have in verse 10? Verse 10 is right here with this passage. It needs to be seen with this passage. That there are good works that God has for us, right? We were saved to live out good works. That is repentance. The fruits of repentance show up in our lives. There's a repentance that comes alongside faith to give evidence of our salvation. So you could say that verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2 are showing our reception of salvation. It's by grace. It's through faith. It's not of works. How do we receive the salvation that God has for us? By faith alone, based on His grace. It's a gift. But how do you know if you've actually received it? Well, these good works that God has that we walk in are evidence of our salvation, aren't they? Good works that follow are evidence. Because it says in verse 10 that these good works are prepared beforehand by God for us to walk in them. So those good works don't lead us to salvation. These good works flow out of salvation. You don't earn your way, you don't work your way toward obtaining 
a gift, because then it's no longer a gift. You receive the gift, and what comes into your life? Good works. As God continues to work in you and through you for the rest of your waking hours here on earth. And so that's a proper way of viewing faith and repentance. They work together. Now let me back up. I got the slides out of order here. A strictly literal translation of the word metanoia, that's the word for repentance, means to change one's mind. Meta, the first part, means change, and noia is the Greek word for mind, to change one's mind. However, Scripture goes even further talking about a change of action. So repentance is, and you've got this on your box here at the bottom right of your sheet, repentance is a God-given conviction of personal sin expressed in godly sorrow resulting in a mind that desires holiness. It's God-given sorrow over your sin and a desire for holiness. And so what, what I'm introducing here to you is that if a person doesn't have that going on in his or her life, it's extremely likely that person has never been saved. If you say that God has saved you from your sin and yet you still love your sin and you have no sorrow over your sin, how could you even be saved? That is the evidence that God gives us that we have been saved, that we would have good works entering into our lives, that there would be a weeding out of the sin and a desire for holiness. Okay, thoughts or questions there as we land the plane today? On faith and repentance. So, so here's a, a, a what's the right word? A, a pithy statement that you can take with you today and marinate on it, and we'll come back next week and talk about it more. The fruit of your faith can't save you. So the first part of this is the fruit of your faith cannot save you, but neither can a fruitless faith. The fruit of your faith can't save you, but neither can a fruitless faith. So, marinate on that for a week. I guess, we're, well, we're talking about fruit, so, uh, oh, what's the word? Um, oh, what's it called when juice turns to wine? What's that process called? Yeah, fer ferment on that one for a while. Not marinate, ferment. Okay, uh, Mandy, what were you going to say? Yes, there have been deathbed conversions um, since the time of Christ, right? We see that amazing moment when... Jesus is breathing his last on the cross, or just before that, this thief that was crucified with him believed and was given the promise, today you will be with me in paradise. And he was unable to show any good works in his life other than believing in Jesus. And that was enough for salvation. Okay, well next week we'll pick back up there and continue to talk about repentance and then also imputed righteousness. But let me pray and send us off. God, we thank you again so much for this day you've given and the amazing treasures we have in your word. Help us to see them today, to embrace them, to apply them by your spirit's power. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.